Allow me to add my uh, word of welcome to you all this morning. It is a joy to be gathered together in worship, uh, especially as we're continuing in this series that we are calling Generous Justice. The reason we're in this series is because justice has become quite a topic uh, in our society. Over the past several years, people have been talking about what does it mean to actually do justice, to pursue social justice, to ensure that everyone has access to justice, and to fight injustice. This is a conversation that is very live, very real in our culture today. And so we thought it would only be right and wise for us as a church to take a step back and say, but what does that actually mean? What does it mean to pursue justice? How does God think about justice? And how should that shape how we then pursue it together? And so that really is what this series is all about. We're kind of moving our way through it and and examining it from God's own perspective. And so as we continue uh, in this series, I think it's only uh, right and wise that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us. So I would invite you to please uh, bow your heads and to join me as we pray together. Lord God, we are indeed grateful that you have gathered us together as your church, that we can come before your word, that we might learn what it means to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as we've moved through this series, we've really been trying to not only understand what justice is, but why we pursue it and how we do it. That really is kind of the whole uh, progression of what we've been talking about. And last week, we looked at what justice is, at least how it's defined in Scripture. And what we saw is that when you look at the term justice in the Bible, you kind of look at it from God's perspective. We, We learn a couple things about justice. First and foremost, we learn that it is both retributive and restorative. It's retributive in the sense that God's justice stops evil in its tracks. It prevents evil and brokenness from having their way in the world. It ensures that those who are perpetrating injustice against others are put uh, to, are are stopped, and that 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 doesn't kind of continue in our world. But then it doesn't just end there. It's not purely retributive. Ultimately, God's justice is restorative. God desires to remake our broken world the way he always intended it to be. To bring restoration and healing and wholeness. Where once there was brokenness and division and violence. And it's in pursuing justice, what we see is that God's justice, while it's both retributive and restorative, it's also ultimately holistic. Pastor Dave did a great job last week kind of helping us understand that, that when we look at how God pursues justice in the Bible, and when we look at how he calls people to pursue justice, it really takes three forms. The first and the most immediate is relief. That where there is a need, where there's some sort of injustice, God's justice comes in and provides immediate relief, but it doesn't stay there. It then seeks to truly be restorative and transformative by then pursuing development helping those who've been victims of injustice or brokenness to find a way out to help raise them up and to give them a dignity and integrity once more. And then furthermore, what we see is that it doesn't just stay with individuals or with single households, but ultimately it moves out and transforms all of society. 
And the reason why we see these three aspects of justice at work in Scripture is because of the ultimate picture that God has in mind for his world. In the very first week of our series, we looked at this, how God gave the prophet Micah this vision of what he would ultimately come and do, that he would make everything new. He doesn't just come to bring salvation to individuals and to rescue us from a broken world. What we see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that one day God is going to come and heal all things, make all things new. That there will be no more violence or warfare or clashes between nations. There there will not be inequity and inequality between peoples. That every person will have a place in his kingdom as he makes not just a new heavens, but a new earth. That's why God's justice is so so multifaceted, so all-encompassing, is because ultimately it's pointing us toward this future vision of what will one day be. So that's what justice is, at least according to the Bible. But now the question becomes, so why do we pursue it? Why do we, as God's people, pursue justice? Why does God himself, as God, pursue justice? Why is that so important to him, and why should it be important to us? And to help us understand this, I want us to go back to kind of like the theme verse for this series. It comes to us from Micah 6, 8. Micah was an Old Testament prophet who was sent to God's own people. You see, God's own people had forgotten their calling. And they had uh, stopped worshiping God. They'd started worshiping the idols of money, sex, and power. And as a result, uh, because they were worshiping those things, it then affected how they related to one another. They were taking advantage of the poor and the marginalized, the orphan and the widow and the foreigner and the immigrant in their midst. And so God sends Micah with a message to not only remind the people of who they are, but to once again call them to follow him. And in perhaps the most famous verse from the entire book of Micah, this is what God tells them. He says, what does the Lord require of you? But to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Last week we looked at what it means to act justly, but this week I want to focus on the second part of that verse where he talks about loving mercy. Because it's in understanding this phrase, what it means to love mercy, that we suddenly begin to understand why it is God pursues justice and why we should do so as well. You see, it's a really uh, fascinating phrase uh, to love mercy. If you actually look at it in the original Hebrew, it's a phrase that's hard to translate well into English because literally what it means is, I want you to love love. That's exactly what he says, and you're going to love love. Now, and what's really interesting about that phrase, love, love, is, you know, um, when, you, when you read it in the Hebrew, it's actually two different words for love. The first word is ahavath, which means just to love the way we typically think of love. When you fall in love or you love someone, you're dedicated to it, you're committed to it, right? You're dedicated to that person and to that relationship. But then the second word is a very different kind of word, and it's the word chesed. Okay, now the word chesed is a great word. Uh, first and foremost, it's great for clearing out your throat in the morning. You wake up and you say chesed, and you, know, so you just kind of get the extra phlegm out of there. But the word chesed actually is a very rich word in Hebrew. What it means is it's a different kind of love. It means loving kindness or covenant love or covenant faithfulness. And if you were an ancient Israelite, when you heard that word chesed, you would have thought of one thing. You would have thought of God with Moses on Mount Sinai. 
Because it's there on Mount Sinai that the, that the Old Testament first introduces us to this idea of chesed in all of its beauty. You see, what had happened in the story up to that point is that God's own people had been victims of injustice. They'd been slaves under the Pharaoh in Egypt. Their backs were, were marked by the whips of their masters. Their lives were uh, trapped in poverty. Uh, their very livelihoods were dictated to them as they built the cities for the Egyptians for no pay whatsoever. It was, a, it was back-breaking, demoralizing, dehumanizing work, and it lasted for over 400 years. 400 years of the people dwelling in slavery, victims of injustice to this tyrant king. And what we read in Exodus is that God hears their cry. He hears the cry of the victims and he sends Moses and he says, I'm going to deliver my people and I'm going to bring justice on all the wickedness of Egypt. And so he does bring justice. He brings uh, their wickedness to an end as he, as he punishes them and judges them with plagues and ultimately washes their army away in the sea and leads his people through to freedom on dry land. And then he brings them to Sinai. And it's there at Mount Sinai he says, Now I, the God of justice, call you my people to be a people of justice. And he gives them his law. And it's after giving them the laws, there, there, there comes this encounter between God and Moses where it becomes very quickly apparent that the people aren't going to follow God's laws perfectly, that they're going to fall short, that they're going to fall back into the ways that they learned in Egypt and so on and so forth. And in that moment, Moses cries out to God and he says, I need you to help me lead these people. And God says, I will help you lead them. And he says, and now, Lord, show me your glory. God says, I can't show you my glory. If I did, it would, it would literally blow you away. But what I will do is I will pass by you and I will reveal myself to you. And as God passes by, this is what he tells Moses about who he is. He says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness. And what's so beautiful about what we translate as two words at the very end of that verse, love and faithfulness, is actually one word. It's the word chesed. You see, what God wants his people to understand is, is they already knew that he was a God of justice. They'd seen him bring justice against the wickedness of Egypt. But now as they stand at the foot of the mountain and they see God's glory up on the top in, in fire and in lightning, they're, they're wondering, oh my gosh, what does it mean to follow a God of justice? And God says, yes, I'm a God of justice, but you need to know why I'm so committed to justice because at my heart, at my core, I am a God of chesed. I'm a God of covenant love who loves my people even when they don't love me back, who loves my people even when they turn their backs on me and run from me, even when they follow idols, even when they follow the broken ways of this world. I am a God who, though you are faithless, I will be faithful. And that's why I pursue justice, is because I love you. Because when I see you trapped in slavery and in sin and in death, when I see you trapped in the brokenness and darkness of this world, when I see your backs lashed open by whips and your arms bound by chains, I, out of my love, come to rescue you and to put, a, and to put an end to all wickedness. That's who I am. It's out of my love that I pursue justice. That's why I do it. 
And that's who we're called to be. When God, through the prophet Micah, says, I want you to do justice, but I also want you to love love. I want you to love chesed. He's saying, I want you to pursue justice out of godly love for those who so desperately need it. He says, with my compassion, with my grace, I desire that you would pursue justice out of covenant loving kindness. So what does that look like? Because that's why God does it. How does that look like? What does it mean to actually pursue justice out of loving kindness? Well, to understand that, we need to take a closer look at the story that was read just a few moments ago from Mark chapter 1, where Jesus encounters a man who has been plagued by leprosy. Leprosy was a truly debilitating disease in the ancient world. Number one, because there was no physical cure. And so as a disease that was progressive and how it just ate away at the body, it was ultimately a death sentence for anybody who had it. But it was a debilitating disease for more than just the physical toll that it took on a person. It was debilitating because of the uh, social and emotional and mental and relational toll that it took on people. Because the moment somebody was diagnosed with leprosy, they were cast out from their community. The community would no longer take care of their needs. They were no longer allowed to work jobs. They couldn't live in their own homes. They were forced to dwell out in the wilderness, and there was no hope for them. And if, miraculously, somehow they were healed, then they could come back into the community and be restored to the community. But as far as they had seen, that had only ever happened once before, maybe twice. To Miriam, Moses' sister, and to a Syrian general named Naaman. Twice in all of their history had someone ever been healed from leprosy. It was a death sentence. Debilitating on every level. And so this man comes to Jesus. And he bows on his knees and he begs him, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And it says, this is really fascinating, Jesus was indignant. Indignant. Why? Why was... Why is that Jesus' reaction? Why is he indignant? What is he, what is he so upset about? Is he upset that the guy comes and asks him? Is he upset that this guy comes and demands uh, to be healed from him? Well, again, this is where I think our English translations, they just fall short. This is where it's so important to know a little bit about ancient languages. Because the word that's being used here by Mark, it's another great word, lots of fun. It's the word splagnizomai. Okay, yeah, you're like, that's just bizarre. Okay, the word splagnitomai, do you know what this word actually means, like in the Greek? It actually means to be stirred in your guts. That's what it means. It's like a nasty word. You're stirred in your guts, like you are cut to your core to where your insides hurt. That's what, it's, what it means here. And, and so the question is, okay, so what's then Jesus splagnitomai about? What's bothering him about this whole circumstance? And what's fascinating to note is the other places where Mark uses the same word. One of the other places that Mark uses this very same word is in Mark chapter 6. When the crowds come to Jesus. And here's what it says. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he splagnizomide them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now our English translations, they translate that, had compassion on them, but it's the same word. What is Jesus indignant about? Not that this man would ask 
for help. Not that this man would ask for healing. What upsets him is he sees a, a human being made in the image of God, being ravaged by diseased and abandoned by his community. Human being made in the image of God, ravaged by disease and abandoned by his community. And it breaks his heart. And he becomes upset. Not at the man, but at the circumstances that would lead a man to beg for compassion. That would lead a man to beg for help and for aid. And so this is important for us as we understand, so what does it mean to pursue justice with chesed, with compassion, with deep loving kindness? Is first to ask ourselves a very important question about what we feel when we encounter someone in need. You see, that will really be the test. When you encounter someone in need, what makes you angry? Are you upset that they ask? Are you upset that they impose? Are you upset that it will, what it will cost you? Or are you upset that a human being made in God's image has been reduced to nothing more than needing to beg for compassion and for justice? You see, what we become upset about reveals a great deal about whether we are pursuing justice with loving kindness and compassion. Because often what I see in our world is that when we encounter someone calling for justice, we react with anger, but not on behalf of the person, but against them. That when a fellow citizen says this system is unjust, it's not only disenfranchised me, me personally, but my community, my neighborhood, my people, we react with anger and defensiveness. That when we encounter somebody on the highway, with a cardboard sign, asking for food. We react with anger that maybe this person is standing there just to get a free handout. See, Jesus had anger when he encountered injustice, but not at the people. He got angry at injustice. He got angry at brokenness. He got angry at the things that would cause a human being made in God's image to be reduced to nothing more than somebody who is begging for kindness, which should be given to them by virtue of the fact that they're made in God's image. You see, this is what has motivated some of the greatest social movements in our world, is this understanding. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., when he was asked why he pursued civil rights, why he was pursued, was calling for desegregation and inequality. It's fascinating to, to hear what he says in answer to that question because he doesn't say, well, because I'm a black man and my community has been disenfranchised and we need to have equality with everybody else. It's not, it doesn't go to the Constitution and say, well, we're all citizens and we should have the same rights as everybody else under the Constitution. You know what's fascinating about where he goes? He goes to Scripture. This is what he says. He says the whole concept of the image of God is the idea that all men have something within them that is God-injected. Not that they have substantial unity with God, but that every man has a capacity to have fellowship with God. And this gives him a uniqueness. It gives him worth. It gives him dignity. And we must never forget this as a nation. There are no gradations in the image of God. 
Every man from a treble white to a bass black is significant on God's keyboard precisely because every man is made in the image of God. And one day we will learn that God made us to live together as brothers and to respect the dignity and worth of every man. This is why we must fight segregation with all of our nonviolent might. Dr. King went to scripture. Why? Because he was a reverend, because he was a Christian, because he understood that the reason why we pursue justice is out of love for our fellow human beings made in the image of God. That's why we do it. And when we encounter anything that diminishes or demeans that image, any form of brokenness or inequality or injustice, we pour out everything that we have in order to address it. Jesus was upset because he saw the image of God, the image of his father being marred in the life of this man. He wanted to do something about it. His compassion takes him even further. Notice what Jesus does next as he speaks with this man. After hearing his cry, he says, I'm willing be clean. He reaches out his hand and he touches the man and immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. See, what's so fascinating is how Jesus heals this man. First and foremost, he touches him. I don't know if you've thought about this. Did Jesus actually have to touch the man to heal him? No, he, he didn't. In fact, there are, there are stories in the Gospels where Jesus doesn't even meet a person and is able to heal them simply by speaking a word. He could have seen this dude running uh, 100 yards on the road and be like, hey, dude, stop running. Just take a breath, take a breather. You're fine. You're healed. And that would have been it. So why does he touch him? Because he understands that the healing that needs to be brought in this man's life goes far deeper than simply his physical infirmity. This is a man who for years probably has not received loving human touch. That because of his disease, the only touch he would have experienced was people running at him with sticks and stones to drive him out of their villages. And Jesus, understanding that need, reaches out with compassion and touches the man. It's a way of bringing emotional healing to him, not just physical healing. But then notice what he does. He goes even further to offer social healing, relational healing, and religious healing. He says, I want you to go to the priests, show them. Why? As a testimony to them. Jesus wants this man to go and be fully restored to his community. Because he knows that by going through that system, not only will this man be restored to his community, but he'll once more be get given the green stamp to work again, to hold a job, to have a household, to be back in relationship with his family and his friends, with his neighbors and his coworkers. This is full healing, not just meeting an immediate need. That's what Jesus desired. It was not just to help this guy get over this one little problem, but to restore the dignity and the beauty of the image of God in him through this form of encounter. 
And so again, it, it forces us to ask ourselves a question about how we pursue justice and why we do it. And that is, when you step in to serve, is your desire to fix a problem or to restore a person, a community, or a people group? That will very, very quickly determine whether or not we are pursuing justice out of a heart of compassion. Because if we're pursuing justice not out of a heart of compassion, but to just get past the uncomfortable and just solve the immediate problem, we're just going to fix the problem and move on. But not for Jesus. Jesus doesn't see a problem. He sees a person. And his desire is to bring full restoration to that man. And that's what he does in how he heals him and the instructions that he gives him. It's to bring that full wholeness and restoration. It goes back to our definition of justice from last week. Jesus doesn't just provide relief. He provides development, reform, and transformation to the ultimate level to show his own society what kind of healing God ultimately can bring in his kingdom. As a testimony to them that they still have a God of love and compassion who brings healing to people who out of his love and his grace and his mercy cares for the marginalized and the outcast. That's the reason Jesus tells him to go back. He says, it's why? It's a testimony to them. And so when we serve, are we just there to fix a problem or are we there to restore a person, a community, or a people group? Compassion would have us do the latter. The third and final thing that we see is what it ultimately costs Jesus. There's this beautiful little narrative detail that Mark includes. He doesn't have to, but he includes this beautiful little detail at the end of this account. It says, instead, the man went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. And as a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. Now, it's interesting to note that Mark says that Jesus not able to enter the town because of the crowds? Well, we know the answer is no, because later on in Mark's gospel, what does he do? He enters tons of towns that are crowded with lots and lots of people. The crowds aren't the problem. In fact, the crowds now come out to him to pursue him. Why doesn't he go in? Well, because in Jesus' day, to touch someone who had leprosy was to become unclean. To touch someone with leprosy means that you have now been tainted by disease and sin and death. And what Jesus was willing to do in this moment of healing this man is he was willing to trade places with him. He knew that the moment he touched that man to bring him healing, he would be the outcast. No longer welcome in. He knew that by touching that man, he would now be the one on the margins. And yet, he did it anyways. And this, too, I think is a good litmus test for whether we're pursuing justice out of a heart of compassion. Because when we learn to ask ourselves the question, is your primary concern a cost to you or the benefit to the other? Is our primary concern the cost to us or to those that we are serving? Because I think in our world today, when we talk about justice, often what I hear, excuses for why we don't pursue it to the level that perhaps we should, is because of the cost. Jesus could have said, well, I could touch this man and give him full healing, but I'm not going to because then I can't go into towns. That might compromise my ministry. And for the sake of the many, I'm just not going to meet that one need of the one, you know, because this is my duty. This is my calling and job. He could have justified it that way. He could have counted the cost and said, not worth it. But he didn't. 
And yet oftentimes in our conversations, when it comes to discussions around justice, it's like, well, how much is that going to cost? What will that do to my taxes? Maybe I'll have to pay more taxes. What will that do to my time? Do I have to give up a night of my week, a weekend, a whole week off? Do I have to go to places that are uncomfortable, that'll stretch me out of my comfort zone? What if I don't know the language? What if I don't know the culture? What if someone steals my car? What if I get injured? What if I miss my flight back? What if I get COVID? Like, The excuses go on and on and on, but what are we concerned about when we ask such questions? How much is it going to cost me? That was never a question in Jesus' mind. The only thing that he considered is, what does this man need? What does he need? And no price was too high. He was willing to trade places with him at great cost to himself, and it didn't matter because he understood his calling was to pursue justice with chesed, with loving kindness and compassion. And we are called to do likewise, and do you know why? Because that's what Jesus did for us. Jesus, sitting upon his throne in heaven, surrounded by light and glory, was willing to, pay the cross, uh, to, willing to pay the cost to enter into this world to embrace a cross. To look down upon us in our dark, broken, and unjust world and to say, I will touch these people and trade places with them that they might be welcomed in. That those of us who were destined to die outcasts on a hill outside the city instead receive mercy as he himself is nailed to a cross and put on display outside of Jerusalem. He comes to welcome outcasts in and to take their place. That's ultimately what he did for every single one of us, and the cost was not too high. Scripture tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He did so to bring many sons and daughters to righteousness. He was willing to become an outcast so that outcasts might be welcomed in as children of their heavenly father. That's what compassion looks like. That's what Jesus' own generous justice does. It doesn't look at problems but sees people. That it doesn't consider the cost but only looks to the redemption that is upset by brokenness and lays down everything to help people experience the grace, the mercy, the compassion, and the covenant love of the God who one day will come and make everything new. That's the gift of his generous justice for us. That's the kind of compassion, loving kindness that he calls us to give to the world. That's what it means to do justice, to love love, and to walk humbly with our God. Let us pray. Lord God, we give you thanks that in our darkness and brokenness, you entered in and you touched us. You were outcasts to welcome outcasts in. You laid down everything in order that we might experience the full restoration that only you can give. Lord, how can we do anything less? Help us to become a people 
who do justice, who love kindness, who walk humbly with you. It's in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.